The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 6 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC6. This is Secret Church 6, Episode 4. How does he satisfy himself and save us? How does divine satisfaction happen? Second part, through divine substitution. One God, starting point of 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself. One mediator. This is where we begin to see the cross is not just one of about ten options God had for how to save sinners. I'm going to choose this one. This is the only way. It's the only way. Why? What was so significant about Christ? These words, divine substitution. What do we mean by that? God satisfies himself by substituting himself in the place of sinners. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us instead of us. Now, In order to get the substitution idea, we've got to consider some facets of Christ. First, consider who he is, the person of Christ. We need to see the humanity and deity of Christ. And both of these are extremely important. I think it's to our uh, detriment today that you will search most evangelistic tracts and even a lot of evangelistic preaching and teaching. And you will find very few that talk about the full humanity and full deity of Christ. It's like we don't think it's that important. But it is that important. This is what separates Christianity, the Christian gospel, New Testament gospel, from the multitude of cults that are out there today. It's what separates New Testament gospel Christianity from from Islam or Judaism. This is the picture here. Humanity and deity. Stott said the possibility of substitution rests on the identity of the substitute. And by the way, I'm quoting Stott numerous times, and there's a part of the back of uh, of your notebook that has recommended reading probably top book on there is The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Incredible book. This possibility of substitution rests on the identity of the substitute. Who is Jesus? Well, first, he's fully man. Hebrews 2, 17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every way. How is he like us? Well, he was born, obviously somewhat different from us, and then he was born of a virgin. This picture of the spirit conception of, of Christ. He was born. He possessed the full range of human characteristics. He had a human body. He was wrapped in claws at his birth. He grew and became strong, Luke 10. John 4, he had a body that got tired. I mean, he'd get a little weary at the end of a long night. Matthew 4, he was hungry. He would get hungry. He had a stomach that would growl like ours. This is the picture. He is fully human, a human body, a human mind. He grew in wisdom. Human mind, a human soul. My heart is troubled. Jesus was troubled in spirit, John 13. Matthew 26, soul overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. A human soul, human emotions. Matthew 8, verse 10, talks about how Jesus was astonished when he heard something. John 11, 35, he wept. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. He had human emotions and human observation. Pointing out there, this is a commentary. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers in Matthew 13? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Where did this man get all these things? People looked at him as a man. They saw him as a man. They identified him as fully man. That means he is fully able to identify with us. He is not 
unlike us trying to do something for us. He is a representative of us. If he is not fully human, if he is not like us, he cannot represent us. It's what I love about Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Let these words soak in. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is familiar with our struggles. He's familiar with our sorrow. Hurting brother or sister tonight, he is familiar with your sorrow. He is familiar with our suffering. The longer I walk with Christ, it's the humanity of Jesus that brings more and more and more comfort to my soul. There's a term in music called sympathetic resonance. If you had two pianos on stage up here and you were to hit middle C on one, on one of the pianos, that note would resound just ever so slightly in the other piano. Same note would respond to it. I remind you, when you go through difficult times in this life and when your heart is broken and you're weeping and you hurt, know that there is a man in heaven whose instrument is like yours. And when you feel that hurt, there is a resonance that comes from him. He's our sympathetic resonance. What an incredible picture. Fully human. Second, he is fully God. Fully God. C.S. Lewis said the doctrine of Christ's divinity seems to me not something stuck, not something stuck on which you can unstick, but something that peeps out at every point. So you don't have, you'd have to unravel the whole web to get rid of it. There's a lot of people who would believe Jesus is fully man. Not a lot of people. A lot less people who believe he is fully God. His identity. John 1, 1 through 4. Beginning was the word. The word was with God. He is eternal. Hebrews 1, 8. About the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Jesus is eternal. He's our creator. We've seen God as creator by him. Talking about Christ, Colossians 1, 15 and 16. By him, all things were created. Things in heaven or on earth, visible and unvisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's creator. He's sustainer. You see him being equated with God here. In him all things hold together. Christ holds all things together, Colossians 1.17. He's omnipotent. He stands up, and the wind and the waves obey him. Matthew 8. Matthew 14. He multiplies the food. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking in their hearts. He knew what was in a man. People said, we can see that you know all things. This makes us believe that you came from God. He is sovereign. I put Mark 2 there when Jesus claims to have authority to forgive sins. For C.S. Lewis, this is, what, this is what convinced him of the divinity of Christ, to claim to have the authority, to either to, to be the one sinned against and then have authority to forgive sins. And then I've got Matthew 11 there. All things have been committed to me by my, fa- by my Father in the middle. His testimony, Jesus claimed identification with the Father. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. He uses this 
This picture of I am in the Old Testament to identify himself. I and the Father are one, John 10.30. Man's testimony of him. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, after he'd risen from the grave. Colossians 2.9, Paul writes, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Then you've got the author of Hebrews telling us that Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. Then you've got John in Revelation showing us this picture. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, is, and who was, and was to come, the Almighty. The quintilemma. In other words, five options. Number one, aren't you glad I like, didn't like, leave that a blank right there? Oh, quintilemma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like, I was just talking about quintilemmas today. Like, uh, it's just, yeah. Anyway. It's one of those moments I know you're like, man, you preachers got too much time on your hands. You're not making up words. Like, that's not a word. The quintilemma. Is Jesus, number one, is Jesus a legend? Are all these writings about him phony? He's a myth that's developed over time. We don't have time to dive into this, but there is more historical reliability of the New Test- in the New Testament than for any other book in ancient history. Not just a legend. Is Jesus a uh, llama, the picture here, being an Eastern pantheistic sense, kind of like Dalai Lama, the picture of a, of a guru, Eastern guru. And so when Jesus was claiming to be God, was he just saying, well, I'm... I'm God and one with God like everything is. And that, the only problem is he was a Jew. That didn't fit at all with the entire worldview that he was living in and representing. Third, is Jesus a liar? He said he was God. If he wasn't and he knew he wasn't, then he was a liar. Even secular scholars would claim that Jesus was a great man. Well, was he really a great man if he walked around saying he was God, identifying himself with the creator of the world? Deceiving others in the process. Does that make one great? Does that make one humble and meek as he is described? Is Jesus a lunatic? Maybe he said he was God and really thought he was when he wasn't. Or, if he's not a legend, Eastern guru, Lama, a liar or a lunatic, then this is C.S. Lewis's conclusion. He is Lord. He's Jesus' Lord. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus is able to fully identify with God. Jesus is God in the same sense and the same degree, to the same degree as the Father. He's not any less God than the Father is God. He is fully able to identify with God. John Owen said he suffered not as God, but he who suffered was God. Now that doesn't make this picture simple. Fully human, fully God, the person of Christ is a mysterious unity of two natures. Got a quote there from the Athanasian Creed. A mysterious unity, not a contradiction, but a mystery. How does this come together? I was, I was looking back and reading some about these natures of Christ together, and I came across Arthur Pink and what he wrote. And this, I think this clears it up. This important distinction calls for careful consideration. By a person is meant an intelligent being subsisting by himself. The second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature and gave it subsistence by union with his divine personality. It would have been a human person if it had not been united to the Son of God. But being united to him, it cannot be called a person because it never subsisted by itself as other men do. Hence the force of that holy thing which shall be born to thee. It was not possible for a divine person to assume another person subsisting of itself and to union with himself. For two persons remaining two to become one person is a contradiction. Ah, Like, that's it. Thanks for clearing that up, Arthur. Like, it all makes sense now. (laughs) 
Okay, so we got a mysterious unity here. How does this fit together? Well, think about it this way. First, his human and divine nature are different. They're different. They're things he does that reveal, give us a picture of human nature and things he does that reveal divine nature. So there's, a, there's a distinction here in a sense. We're going to get to how they're unified, but look, and I've got examples here. He's returned to heaven, his human nature, and he's present with us, divine nature. He was 30 years old, and he eternally existed. Human nature, divine nature. My goal is to give you a headache in this process right here. He was tired. This is the great thing. Matthew 8 is such a picture. He's tired. He's worn out, sleeping on a boat. And then he wakes up and tells the wind and the waves to obey him. Tired and omnipotent. Right there together. He was born a baby and he sustains the universe. He lost his human life and he possesses divine authority. How does this happen? How does this happen? This is the picture of the human nature and the divine nature together, yet different. So his human nature and divine nature are different. At the same time, his human nature and divine nature are unified. What I mean by that is anything that Jesus does that shows this picture of his human nature is truly the person of Christ. In the same way, anything he does that shows us this picture of the divine nature is truly the person of Christ. When he says in John 8, 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was born, my divine nature existed. It's not what he says. It's like if I were to write you a letter and I were to say, I wrote you this letter. I would not say, well, my fingers wrote you this letter, but my toes had nothing to do with it. I would not say that. That would... Anything that I'm doing, my fingers are doing, then representative of me doing. That's the picture. And so when we look at the picture that Paul writes, what I received, I passed on to you as a first important, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Did God die? Did God die on a cross? And the picture is, certainly in his human nature, Jesus died. His divine nature, though, sustaining the entire universe, cannot die if the divine nature is dead, then how can things continue to exist? If the divine nature's not there, we're not there. So the picture is, would it be right to say, did God die on the cross? Yes and no. In the sense that Jesus in his person died, yes. But his divine nature did not die. And this is the picture. Different but unified. When he says, I'm come from, come from the Father and enter the world, now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father, and then he says, I'm going to be with you always. And so when it comes to the person of Christ on the cross, this is not Jesus alone as if he had no divine nature. It's not God alone as if he had no human nature. But the, the one on the cross is God in Christ. Not man alone, not God alone, but God in Christ. Fully God, fully man. Displayed Wonderfully in Colossians 1, 19-20. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's the person of, the, of, of Christ. Fully able to identify with us, fully able to identify with God. Fully human, fully God. Now that's his person. What about his purpose? He came with a purpose to seek and save what was lost. Jesus came, divide that up into two pictures. He came to live a sinless life, to live a sinless life. He came to live the life that we could not live. 
You see listed there, John 18, 38. I find no basis for a charge against him. Hebrews 4, 15, he was without sin. 1 Peter 1, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 John 3, in him is no sin. He was obedient, perfectly obedient to God. Now this is important. It's important because obviously Jesus didn't come and give his life for us on a cross as a child. He was obedient. He demonstrated obedience to the law of God, fulfillment of the law of God in his obedience. John 15, 10, I've obeyed my father's commands. He was obedient and his obedience is necessary for our salvation. And he was righteous, is righteous. We need, in order to be reconciled to God, we don't need to just be rid of sin. We need to be clothed in righteousness. So it's necessary for Christ to be righteous. And you see these verses that show us that picture. So we came to live a sinless life, obedient and righteous. And he came to die a substitutionary death. This was the purpose of him coming. You look at every single one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will see in different ways this picture of the fact that the cross was not an accident. This is why Jesus came. Mark 8, 9, 10, back to back to back, Jesus is giving us pictures of where he is going. Luke is showing us all this is going to Jerusalem. John constantly talks about the hour that is to come. It's not time. There were times when they wanted to stone Jesus or wanted to throw Jesus off cliff. And the picture is he would walk right through them. It was not time. He came to die a very purposeful death at an exact time. Substitutionary death. What does that mean? Well, it means that he assumed our identity. Think about this with me. What is the payment for sin? Death. Well, if Jesus is obedient and righteous, then he has no payment to pay. He does not deserve death. And so, if he were to die, it would not be because of himself. It would be because he is dying on another's behalf. He is assuming our identity that he might make, Hebrews 2 says, atonement for the sins of the people. And the picture is he died, and the key words here, in the place of the disobedient. He died in the place of the unrighteous. You've got verses listed there. John 11, Romans 5, and on into 2 Corinthians and Galatians. And what you see is this little three-letter word, for, mentioned over and over and over again. One man would die for the people, Caiaphas said. Romans 5, you see it over and over again. Just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died. Circle it there, for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this word, it's two prepositions in the original language of the New Testament that are used in these different passages. can mean on behalf of, instead of. The picture is, and it's really summed up well in 2 Corinthians 5 here, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. In one dying, all die. That's a representative. It's a substitute. He is doing something, not just on behalf of, but instead of, in the place of, as a representative for all these others. You look at Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us, and we'll look at this passage later, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Instead of us, he took the curse. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins. By his wounds, you have been healed. So he assumed our identity. And as a result, he accomplished our salvation. So that Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. There's a unity here. In his assuming our identity, he is accomplishing our salvation. He loved me and gave himself for me, on my behalf, instead of me, as my representative. That's how God is reconciling us to himself, Colossians 1. So here we come back to the divine dilemma. And here is how it is solved. Divine satisfaction. Now look at the cross. Bring everything we've talked about when it comes to satisfaction through substitution. Bring it all together. Divine satisfaction, the totality of God's character is expressed. At the cross, we see the full picture of his justice and his wrath and his holiness and his love and his mercy. Here, and I put Psalm 85 in Habakkuk 3, we've got this picture of love and faithfulness meeting together and wrath, remembering mercy. They're all converging. All of the attributes of God converging right here at the cross. The totality of God's character is expressed at the cross. Divine substitution, salvation through God's Son is achieved. The unique son, fully God and fully human. Think about it. The essence of sin, man substitutes himself for God. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That's the essence of sin. What is salvation? The essence of salvation, God substitutes himself for man. And God, in Christ, sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us instead of us on our behalf in him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is nothing greater than this. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we could not, we did not want to die. In our place, he substituted himself. And at the cross, God does these things. He expresses his judgment on sin. See the beauty of the cross here. At the cross, God expresses his judgment on sin. At the same time, God endures his judgment against sin. He expresses judgment on sin and endures judgment against sin. That can only happen through substitution. And at the cross, God enables salvation for sinners. Christ, the God-man, is the only possible substitute that brings satisfaction to the glory of God and salvation to the sons of men. That's the picture that's being displayed here. Let me show it to you. Isaiah 53. If you got a Bible, go with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This is the prophecy written 700 years, spoken 700 years before Christ went to the cross. Listen to what it says. I want to show you here satisfaction through substitution. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There, that is one beautiful chapter of Scripture. What we see here, same truths we've seen. This is an important passage. Eight of these 12 verses are attributed directly to Jesus in the New Testament. Eight of those 12 verses. Verse 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, twice, and... In verse 11, eight out of those 12 verses. It's quoted seven times in the New Testament. Seven different times. And you can see, and you can see the parallels. I just listed them for you there. Quoted seven different times. But here's the picture. Kind of go past all those verses. And I want you to think about all that we've seen to this point displayed in this one chapter of Scripture, an insightful passage. Number one, see the person of Christ. This passage shows us that in his humanity, he is familiar with suffering. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Jesus is not a savior with flowing hair and impeccable features who is always clean and everything looks nice and he's got a little crown around his head at every moment. He had nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. Familiar with sorrow, familiar with suffering. Like us, his humanity, his deity, free from sin. He had no violent, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Sinless and righteous, just like we just saw, the person of Christ. The sinfulness of man, what we've looked at. Verses 4 through 6, 8 and 12. We see our sin is all over this passage. And that leads us to the substitution of God. Verses 4 through 6, you can circle every time we see the picture. Surely he took up our infirmities. Whose infirmities were put on him? Ours were. Whose sorrows put on him? Ours. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's all put on him as our substitute. 
Over and over and over again we see this. Substitution of God. Satisfaction of God. Who who sent Jesus to the cross? Whose will was it to crush Jesus on the cross? It was the Father's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him, verse 10. The Jews nor the Romans were ultimately responsible for the death of Christ. God the Father was ultimately responsible for the death of Christ. It was the Lord's will to crush him. God, satisfaction of, substitution of God, satisfaction of God, leading to the salvation of men in verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. The way we are justified is because of the satisfaction and substitution of God that leads to our salvation. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.